The crushing brutality of the cross gave way to dumbfounding bewilderment. Jesus was dead. Then, three days later, he showed up. After Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit poured out on the early church and began his journey across the oceans and across the millennia to collide with you as you sit in this room today. The gospel crossed mountains, the gospel crossed cultures, the gospel crossed hills, valleys, and what you do when you leave this theater carries the story further. The book of Acts began on the other side of the mountains to our east. It continues in your heart, and its next chapter begins on the sidewalk outside. This is the book of Acts. What would your final words be? If you knew that you had the opportunity to say one last message to the people with whom you work, with your family members, with the people of the city of Seattle, the city of Bellevue, of Renton, Issaquah, Kent, Kennedale, wherever it is that you live and work, would you share the gospel with all of your muster, with all of your passion? And have you come to a place wherein you would be willing, if called upon, to give your life for the cause of the gospel? There are people who give their lives for causes all the time. There were kamikaze pilots who were convinced they were protected by divine wind, thinking that they were guaranteed victory, sacrificing their lives and their planes and crashing upon our aircraft carriers. And all the while, in the end, what they would end with was defeat. People have given their lives before. If you're not giving your life to some sort of cause, you're giving it to something else. If you're, if you're not deliberately giving your life to a cause that is named, such as the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it's going to something else. It's going to worldly pleasures, the accruing of worldly accolades and wealth. It's going to yourself. It's hedonistic by default. You're giving your life for something. Now, would you be willing to give your life for the cause of the gospel? Now, this is not going to be an invitation unto martyrdom. The truth is that that calling applies to about 0.01% of Christians ever. But if you're willing to give your life for the cause of the gospel, then suddenly bringing up the gospel to your coworker seems like way less of a big deal, doesn't it? This is Paul moving his way back around the Aegean Sea. Sorry, from your perspective, <laughs> moving his way back around the Aegean Sea and across the Mediterranean, he's heading back toward Jerusalem. So this opening verses of today's passage, we're in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 13. It moves in reverse order where we've come down around the Aegean Sea and visited Corinth. And now we're working our way back up. You're passing multiple wonders of the ancient world in this text and in the curriculum that is written specifically to follow this passage. I, I, I pour my guts into the Bible study curriculum for our groups. So if you're not in a group, join one. If you want to start one, come to our small group leader, prospective leader meeting. This is, this is going to take us through the ancient world. We've already been to the temple of Artemis where a riot broke out. And now you're going to see another ancient uh, wonder of the world. You're going to pass by the Colossus of Rhodes. It's remarkable to see all these signposts of the ancient world verified archaeologically in the historical world. We're in Acts chapter 20. We're going to begin in verse 13. Watch Paul give one last message. What would you say with your last words before you're going to eventually face your death? This is Paul in exactly that scenario. We went on ahead to the ship 
and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul on board because these were his instructions since he himself was going by land. This was a small peninsula. The ship had longer to go than Paul did. Paul likely had people with him who weren't cleared to go on that ship. And so he's ministering to some of the believers who, who were with him perhaps in Troas, and he's continuing to minister to them as he walks to meet the ship at the next port. When he met us by Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene, sailing from there. The next day, we arrived at Chios. Now, Chios is the home of the poet Homer. All right, that you, you know about this. You've learned about Homer. This is, you're going you're to see the biblical world overlap with what you already know about the historical world. It's fascinating. The following day, we crossed over to Samos. Samos was the birthplace of Pythagoras. Do you remember the Pythagorean theorem from algebra? Seventh grade, A squared plus B squared equals? Yes, you know this. You already know these. This is, that, that's Pythagoras. He was from Samos. And the day after we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. There were some Jews who would mig uh, migrate long ways to arrive in Jerusalem for the Passover, and then rather than going all the way back home and then coming back again, they would just stay in Jerusalem for the entire time. Paul was in a hurry. He wanted to come back to Jerusalem by Pentecost. If you recall, this whole thing kind of started at Passover, and we saw the Holy Spirit pour out at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, the beginning of this book, we see the Holy Spirit pour out upon a multinational crowd of Jewish believers all gathered together in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and then they miraculously, by the gift of tongues, which enabled them to both speak in languages they didn't know, and hear, this is crucial, hear and understand language from other people who didn't know their language. As a result, this outpouring of the gift of tongues at Pentecost served a pragmatic purpose. Now there were Jews from every extant language and dialect of Hebrew with a gospel presentation who went home with some shocking news for their synagogues. We have the Messiah. We have Messiah. Now we can see that we've come full circle. It's back to Pentecost time again. Here's verse 17. Here is his address to the Ephesian elders. Remember that he planted this church. He ministered to these believers in Ephesus. These were Gentiles. The Jewish believers, the Jewish elders in Jerusalem as, you, as you've seen in the text, if you've been following with our, with our devotions, raise your hand if you're, if you're listening to or watching our devotions regularly. All right, if you're not, you're missing a huge chunk of the text. Okay, go to our website, subscribe if you have to, to get these updates because you're missing huge portions of the text. We've seen the Jewish elders, in, uh, formerly Jewish elders in Jerusalem, really get fixated on these recommendations that they give to the churches. And we, they, they accuse Paul of leading people to abandon Moses. You can hear the kind of the hurtful connotation there. You can also hear that they recommend people abstain from blood and meat that is obtained through certain means. They tell people to abstain from sexual morality, that's good. But those same recommendations initially given out of preference while received well, and while initially bearing fruit in the later epistles would soon become a stumbling block because people would cling to those mere personal convictions of the Jerusalem elders and they would, live, they would lead to legalism. 
And it would lead to this whole dispute that Paul would have to write and settle, especially regarding meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. Some pagan in the town makes a meat offering on an altar, and then it's just sitting there, this beautiful, delicious, seared steak. Like, what are we doing with this thing? I mean, the, the, the God that it's being sacrificed to doesn't exist. I will eat that steak to the glory of God. But then somebody else would say, no, 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 no I can't have that meat because it's, pay, it's stained with, I don't know, like demon stuff. I, I, I don't want to eat it. And there's this dispute that breaks out. And Paul, Paul writes to diffuse the tension wherein they're arguing over something that's not gospel-centered. And he says, like, look, if your personal convictions tell you not to eat the delicious tomahawk ribeye that's just been laid on the altar of Horus, then don't. But if your conscience does, eat up to the glory of God. And so Paul is going to have to use his own voice inspired by the Holy Spirit to settle a dispute that would come because of the Jerusalem elders' recommendations. The Ephesian elders, however, have their own culture and it's very different. They're, they're newer believers. They're new to all this. They're from Ephesus. Some of them likely were worshiping Artemis not long ago. One of the ancient wonders of the world was the temple to Artemis in the heart of Ephesus. The gospel was economically disruptive because silversmiths had a huge business going, making these idols to Artemis. And as people would worship Artemis, some of that involved sleeping with temple prostitutes, but also it involved the purchasing of idols. And so there's this huge riot that is incited in chapter 19, wherein people point out Paul and say he is threatening the well-being of our beloved temple and he is destroying our business model. And so Paul is in the midst of this two-hour-long ancient world virtue signaling fest, where people who the text says, most of whom didn't even know why they were gathered there, all end up shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Some of these elders from the church at Ephesus likely were formerly worshipers of Artemis. Now they're worshipers of the true God. And this is a council of pastors, overseers, elders. Those are all interchangeable and right translations of the same original Greek term. These are the Ephesian elders. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. Miletus is just a few miles south of Ephesus, so he just has the elders come and meet him. Elder retreat down in Miletus. When they came to him, he said to them, you know from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable, or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus and now I am on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Let's talk about this because it's profound. In the opening portion of his address to the Ephesian elders, he's going to establish credibility. He's going to remind them of some of the things that he has done for them, establishing rapport, reminding them of rapport, because what he has to say toward the end is going to be kind of confrontational. What he says, what he says, before, what he says before he's done could be a little bit painful to hear. And so he's establishing rapport, reminding them of all the things that they've been through, all the stuff that he's done for them, all the ways in which he has served and blessed them. 
And in it, we see a standard that's gonna be echoed in what we call the pastoral epistles. So this is, this is actually the first time we've seen in the book of Acts, Paul addressing a crowd of believers. We've seen him address Jewish believers. We've seen him address Gentile believers. When he addresses the Jewish believers, he would draw upon their shared understanding of messianic prophecy or the line of David. And he would talk about their love for the law. When he met, when he met with Gentile believers, that means non-Jewish believers, he would even begin with their altar that was built to an unknown God. When we get to our apologetic series, you'll see more of this, where he finds that that kernel of truth and what they believe and then builds a bridge from that to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not affirming their pagan belief, but recognizing what is accurate. You built this altar to a God you don't know. And guess what? You're right. That's correct. You did miss a God. In fact, he's the only God and he is Yahweh. And so he builds this bridge from that altar all the way to the gospel, ending up with a call to repent. Now he's speaking to believers and he's establishing rapport from the onset. You know, verse 20, that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable. Notice that he, notice that he uses the term profitable, something that would yield a good return in you. If a pastor is unwilling to say what is unpopular, though profitable, he's not worth his salt. This is a standard for pastors. It's set by Paul. Whatever is profitable, if you need to hear it, even if you don't want to hear it, this is what is profitable. This is what is good. I didn't, he says, I didn't abstain, I didn't avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable and to, from teaching you publicly and from house to house. Publicly and from house to house. We gather here, and this is public proclamation of scripture. And then on Thursday evenings, the students come to my house and we gather and we play spike ball, we ride skateboards, play basketball. Uh, we taught a bunch of Eastern European teenagers how to play baseball this week. Now they're second generation American and, that, and it, evidently it's in their blood now because they're very good at baseball. And, and we, we gather around the fire and we dive into the scripture and we discuss it in depth and we pray. This coming September, there are some changes coming within our student ministry. As we continue to grow, we're gonna have separate Bible studies for middle school and high school. So both middle schoolers and high schoolers will come to my house. I'll teach middle schoolers. We'll combine for worship where we sing worship songs together and then we'll have separate high school Bible study. So that's coming in September. Stay tuned. I'm doing some recruiting. And if you check the student ministry box in the connect card, I'm coming for you. So we gather here publicly, but we also meet in homes. If you're not a part of a small group, you're not at least looking at the curriculum that is posted on the website when you click member guide, or, or if you want to see the answers that I give to myself and to the leaders, leader guide, <laughs> this is our house to house gathering. The passages that I preach on stop at a certain verse. That is the first verse of the curriculum. Okay, two sessions from now, I'm gonna skip a little bit, but we'll make sure that we cover all of those verses and devotions. We go from sermon text to curriculum text to devotion text, and all of these combine to make a verse-by-verse -verse plan through the Bible. I wanted to integrate our house-to-house -house proclamation with our public proclamation. Because when I grew up as a kid, you know, I, I, in youth group at my church, I may have bought myself a devotional book at the Lifeway Christian Store back when those existed. And, and I, would, I would go through this personal devotion, but it had nothing to do with what I was studying in 
church. Like I would get to church and my parents would go to their Sunday school class and I would go to my Sunday school class. And I had no idea what my parents were studying and they had no idea what I was studying and it had nothing to do with my devotional book. And then we would all gather together in corporate worship for the public proclamation. And then what we heard in the public proclamation had nothing to do with what we just heard in my Sunday school and nothing to do with what my parents heard in their Sunday school and nothing to do with what I was studying in my devotional and my dad was studying in his devotional. My mom was studying in her devotional. And so at the Redemption Church, I want to align everything that we do around a book by book plan through all of God's inspired word where we proclaim scripture publicly here and then house to house, we pick up often on the very next verse. This is, this is how proclamation worked in Paul's context and it's exactly how we have arranged the redemption church. Look at verse 21. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith on our Lord Jesus. I think that's a beautifully profound summary of the mission of the church. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. You notice that it's repentance toward. To repent is to turn around, to turn back around and take a different course of action. And to repent towards God means you were going away from God and you repent and you come back to him. Does that describe anybody's heart right now? Can you be reminded of the beautiful mission of the church? I can think of no better application of this text than for you to do exactly what Paul says to repent toward God. You've been going away from him. You've let your sin get the best of you and you've gone down a rabbit hole. It's taken you farther than you ever thought you would go. Would you repent toward God? Would you come back home again? His grace is new every morning. Repent toward God. Have faith in our Lord Jesus. This is the mission of the church. And this is exactly, this is exactly what Paul exhorted the Ephesian elders to do. In verse 21, he said, now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit. Now, this is profound, because you're going to see some debate come up as to what the Spirit's will is for Paul. In chapter 19, we've seen it. In chapter 20, you're going to see it. And then it's going to come up in our curriculum this week, that the Spirit has warned Paul, you're going to die. There are chains in your future. You're going to be arrested in Rome. He'd actually be arrested twice, but he couldn't know that at this time. And eventually he will be put to death. Eventually he will be, historical, historical tradition maintains, beheaded. But not until he has stayed on house arrest for two years. That's how the book of Acts ends. Sorry if I just spoiled it for you. But he's going to be arrested. He's going to go through a legal rigmarole that is epic. These are some of the closing chapters of Acts. He's even going to be shipwrecked in route. And he doesn't know it yet. As of chapter 20, he doesn't know about the shipwreck. He doesn't know about the legal troubles per se. He just knows about chains and he knows that he's going to give his life for the gospel. And so he knows this is his last chance to speak to these Ephesian elders. These are his last words to them. The spirit has laid it on his heart that that's 